Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 88 of the Lawyerist Podcast, where we talk with Davis Sensman about her creative approach to small business law practice. Today's podcast is sponsored by Zero, beautiful legal accounting simplified. Find out more at Zero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist so that we don't have to worry about getting interrupted when we're being productive, and we love the job that they do for us. You can visit Ruby at callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So, Aaron, today I want to bring up a topic that has sort of become a hot topic, and that is the question whether lawyers ought to learn to code, meaning should lawyers be able to write software code, build their own software, build their own web apps, things like that. And it's come up in a variety of contexts. And most recently, our own David Colarusso did a three-part series that is actually part of the materials to a class he's teaching to law students, but it is sort of walking through the basics of learning to code and building your own fairly basic law bot. But it's sort of the getting your toe through the doorway kind of course. And it's really cool and you should check it out. But he does start out with a very brief discussion of learning to code where he presents three sort of perspectives on whether or not lawyers should learn to code. But the interesting thing is that all three of them believe that yes, lawyers ought to. And I'm, I I thought it might be interesting to talk about that. Yeah, I as soon as he wrote those posts, I bookmarked them for later because I am intrigued to follow along and do some of this learning. But as to the question of whether lawyers as a general proposition should learn to code, I have, I feel like I have very strong mixed feelings about that. Let me propose that asking whether lawyers ought to learn to code is not the same as asking whether lawyers ought to build their own software. No question. I, in general, I think the idea that lawyers should be building software as part of their practices is mostly wrong. Although we know a bunch of solo and small firm lawyers who are actually building really cool software on their own on the side to help their law practices. That's true. And, you know, if you want to do that and you feel like you have the time or the inclination, then that's awesome. But I guess the question is really about, like, should coding be part of, like, the law school curriculum um, in, in an ideal world? You lay out David's three arguments for, and I'll tell you why I'm not convinced. So... David puts together sort of three personas that he calls the disruptors, the liberal arts majors, and the pragmatists. And for each of them, he says kind of this is the perspective on why this group of of, uh, of people would believe that you might need to learn to code. And for the disruptors, um, he these are the people who believe that coding is just a tool in the toolbox of the modern lawyer, that coding is a force multiplier that allows you to become faster, better, and stronger as a lawyer. For the liberal arts majors, he believes that coding is sort of like um, logical thinking. Of course, lawyers should learn to do it because it's sort of the way that you think online. It's the way that you build things. It's more about self-improvement and knowledge than actually putting it into practice. And then he says the pragmatists learning to code is more about literacy. It's about knowing how things work so that you can call BS on tools and technology tools that aren't going to solve problems, but also so that you can know what you can do and be more effective with it. And I I think I'm sort of a pragmatist slash liberal arts major under his 
sort of three-part thing. And then I suppose there's the naysayers who, um, which he doesn't really spend much time on. And those are those who believe that lawyers shouldn't learn how to code. That's somebody else's job. Yeah. So I guess my feeling is like, for the disruptors category, mm-hmm. those people have already self-identified. We don't, we don't need to talk about who should be a disruptor. Like if you if you feel like you've got an idea for how to hack the law, you're already doing it and you don't need any motivation from us. You may very well want David's resources on which, what's the first step to take, but I think that one's kind of off the table as far as should lawyers learn Th- to code. Those lawyers are learning to code regardless. Right. They're going to do it on their own, whether we tell them to or not. Right. The pragmatist perspective is the most compelling to me in the similar vein to the conversations you and I have been having on this podcast about tech competence, which is coding is part a part of the future that is happening and therefore having some minimal, reasonable understanding of it just so you know what's going on in the world. I find that moderately compelling, which, again, doesn't mean you need to build software, but it might mean you need to understand conceptually what the difference between front-end and back-end and SQL and Ruby and these things are, but really at, like, a basic bare competence level, and even then it's kind of a maybe in my mind. I find the least compelling argument to be the liberal arts one because I think lawyers constantly get in this trap of lawyers are so smart and therefore with reading half a book I can know anything and I can be an expert in medicine because I practice med mal and I can be an expert in coding because all I have to do is read half a book and like that attitude gets lawyers in the weirdest traps where they're foregoing paying client work in order to work on their own WordPress website rather than just hiring someone who is an expert in that. And like, there's a reason people are experts in things and why you're a professional lawyer and other people are professional accountants and all this, like, I am a liberal arts advocate in general, but all this dabbling that lawyers get into is just so unproductive. I think that's right. Um, And I think I fall more... That's my rant. Yeah, I mean... I am a liberal arts major, in a, as a matter of fact. As <laughs> am I. <laughs> and, uh, and so, I, I tend to do things like that generally, but, uh, but I, I agree that that's not the most productive. Like, me building my own websites has never been all that productive. It's more because I want to. Well, and it's because you more fall into the disruptor category. Potentially. Um, but I, but I, I think I like the pragmatist side of things where, like, of course, you need to understand how things work. And this is kind of a part of it. Like, I guess I'll take a moment to share, you know, at one point I got fed up with Windows because it was terrible. And I decided kind of, kind of just on a whim to try using Linux. And I, I don't want to go into a long digression about this, but like, but I, I ended up using Linux for two years, uh, Ubuntu Linux, which is a different operating system, right? It's not Windows, it's not Mac, it's it's Linux, and it powers most of the web servers on the internet. And one of the things I realized by using it is sort of what a network really is, because Linux is built as a networking tool, whereas Windows has always tried to hide that, right? You just, you just install Windows and you make yourself an administrator, and you never really think about what's going on underneath what kind of security is going on what kind of the way your computer is talking to other computers but after using linux for a little while the entire way that networks and the internet work made so much more sense to me just by dabbling in that 
And and then recently, another lawyer, David Zvenyach, who who does code and and has written about lawyers and coding, and who was on the podcast, right? And who we've had on the podcast, he was walking me through setting up a, a database on a web server and connecting it to a front end app, and kind of blew my all of a sudden there was this moment where it blew my mind and I like I got how cloud software works right like all of a sudden I appreciated how Clio and my case and um, and FreshBooks and Basecamp and Gmail were put together like I, I couldn't go out and make them but it just all of a sudden it snapped it snapped for me where I understood how it all works and I think once you understand it it demystifies and simplifies software and even hardware in a way that lets you appreciate what's possible. Before you get to that point, all that all that's possible is what you can pay for and what somebody provides you. But if you start realizing, oh, I get how APIs work, which is what kind of what David's learning to code course will show you, everything about the internet makes so much more sense. And I think I think you do learn, have a better appreciation for what kinds of tools you can bring to law practice. No, I, I totally get that. And like, as a liberal arts advocate, I am hyper curious about everything I see. And you, <laughs> you and I read widely, blah, 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 blah. The question, though, is whether it is fair to say, as a general prospective, right, like what, whether whether we are supposed to be prescribing for all lawyers generally that you must learn to code or that you must spend two years dabbling in Linux. And the answer can't be, at least to the last, like the answer can't be that you all have to do what Sam Glover did as no. far as experimenting with technology. And therefore, I'm not sure that the answer has to be you have to learn how to code. Maybe it will. Um, and maybe the lawyers who didn't learn to code will be left behind in 10 years. I have no idea about that. But I don't I don't think it's yet the case that lawyers have to learn how to code. I'm, I'm not comfortable saying that lawyers have to learn to code, but I uh, but I but am some very... people are advocating that. Well, yeah. And, and I think I think every lawyer should should actually take time out and do the Code Academy JavaScript course. Not because you need to learn how to write JavaScript apps, which this won't really teach you, but because learning the basics of how code is put together is a good idea. Not, not, and I'm not gonna, I'm not prepared to say like that's part of basic tech competence. Um, I, I'm saying I think lawyers should do that in the sense of aspirational goals. It's a, and it's a really good idea. Yeah, I don't, and I, I don't know about like I want to take those courses. Yeah, but if I was a mid-career small firm family law attorney in Columbus, Ohio, I, I'm not sure that that has to be on the list any more than learning how the Federal Reserve works and learning how um, nutrition and what metabolic disorders work. <laughs> like These are things that, in theory, curious people should all know a little bit about everything about how the world works, but I don't want to prescribe that for everyone. Well, I, I'm going to throw in here, um, uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's it's related, I promise. In talking with some of the lawyers at the Clio Cloud conference last, well, it'll be two weeks ago by the time you hear this, this idea in my head started forming about the way that modern lawyers, we, we think of lawyers who they sometimes they'll get a, an idea for a, a product or a software product, they go out and build it, and then we talk about them as if they're leaving law practice. But very often they haven't left law practice. They've just figured out a different way to deliver legal services. So I, I guess maybe what I'm thinking is that by by opening up the window, by learning how to code, learning what's possible, it, it lets you see a different way of serving clients and solving legal problems. 
And part of me thinks that, you know, as new possibilities come online, new ways of serving clients by building tools that fix things like this parking ticket app, like like a, a service that allows lawyers to build a referral network that makes them look more like a giant spread out firm uh, and other things, as, as these possibilities come out there, you can stop thinking about serving just one client's legal needs and start thinking about solving that legal problem for anyone who comes to you. Yeah. And so, I mean, specifically, like, uh, and this is kind of more on that disruptor side, like it used to be the case that if you wanted to be a lawyer who did software, you had to quit your law practice and start a software company. Mm -hmm. And now, because it is easy to learn to code, we know lawyers who aren't getting rid of their practice. In fact, they're building the software themselves to support their practice. So our friend Tom Martin from TBD Law Mm -hmm. um, just today announced that he's putting what he calls the law robot on Facebook. And this is a chat bot on Facebook that in California, I'm not advocating for it, it's just like what he's doing, that it's a free chat bot on Facebook to form a California corporation for free using his chatbot. Very cool. And he's just doing this as a side project to help solve a legal need for free to test out his software abilities and potentially to drive traffic to his firm having nothing to do with free corporations. Hmm. That's really neat. Love that. And we and we know other people who are doing similar things. And so like on that side, if you can learn how to code, you can just build cool little tools that will support your practice and solve access to justice questions or disrupt existing competitors, etc. That part's cool. So it seems like we're arriving at no, uh, lawyers shouldn't have to learn to code. Yeah. But if you want to, it can open up a lot of possibilities and you might be able to practice law in a completely different way. Yeah, you shouldn't have to do it. But if you do, we will think you're cool and you'll probably be on the podcast. Oh, that sounds about right. <laughs> so I'll use that as my transition. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move to my conversation with Davis. Uh, my name is... Davis Sensman, and I'm the founder of Davis Law Office, which was started as a um, strictly transactional uh, corporate type firm for small and growing businesses and has evolved into a pretty full service firm um, that still has uh, quite a bit of emphasis on serving the needs of business owners, but we have expanded to also um, practice in the areas of family law and estate planning. And you're about six years from start now, right? Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. I've always felt like um, every small business administration cites the same figure about uh, 90% of small businesses fail within five years. So, I always felt like five years is where you throw your party. Yeah, we'll be seven years in February. Fantastic. And I, I was I was observing uh, that I have known of you for about three, three and a half years because you ended up hiring uh, one of my very best students, Emily Buchholz, uh, in 2013, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I've known of you, but, uh, but I haven't known much more than that uh, and what I hear from Emily since then, which is all positive, I promise. <laughs> But so, I'm. this is a great opportunity for me to learn more. So, why don't you start by, I got from your website bio that you used to be at Big Law and went solo. 
Um, so tell me about that. How long were you at Big Law? What did that look like? And what kind of, how did that transition happen? Yeah, I went to um, a, a pretty fairly sized, I mean, probably 35, 40 attorneys um, okay. law firm when uh, straight out of law school. Um, I got hired there through on-campus interviewing. Um, and it was actually a really good fit. Um, I worked only in the corporate department, but it was a, it was a good size because we weren't big enough that we were super siloed. And, um, we also had a lot of leeway right from the get go to build our own client base. Um, so we, you know, my, my fees were low enough when I was just starting out that I could work with a lot of small businesses. So I worked there for, um, including my time clerking, probably six years. And then, um, a few things happened. Um, the economy was not great. Um, it was 2010. So a lot of, uh, my smaller clients, they, you know, they were, they were tightening things at their companies and my rates were going up because I was, um, pretty much, you know, every few years, your sometimes a few times a year, your rates go up. Um, mm -hmm. and you really don't have any control over that when you're in a bigger firm. Um, and so I was just reaching the point. I often tell people that kind of, I felt like my firm curved as much as they could to kind of, um, allow me the practice I wanted to create. And I curved as much as I could to kind of fit in the typical bigger law firm box. And mm -hmm. there just reached this point where I just thought there's gotta be a cheaper, easier, more nimble way to do this. Um, so in February of 2010, I just decided that I was going to, um, kind of go serve the clients that I liked to work with, um, and not, not have to deal with the bigger clients either, because as I became more senior and my rates were, were higher, there was an expectation that I'd just kind of work with the bigger clients we had and, and just like that more. And that was pretty typical for most corporate attorneys. They liked working on bigger deals, but I, I really still liked kind of the ins and outs and the strategy stuff with the smaller and medium sized businesses. So you had a pretty clear picture of what kind of clients you wanted. Um, when you went in, was there, what kind of informed the, the way that you built your firm? Like what, what did, what were you really trying to do in the way you structured it? And I guess like, what were some of the big things that didn't work, if anything, in when you went in? Or did it all just pan out the way you hoped? Um, I think one thing was that I really, I wanted, um, I really wanted a website that did not look like a typical lawyer website. And our current website is actually kind of iteration two of that. But um, so that was one thing. I wanted to make sure that my marketing and everything was pretty um, accessible to business owners. And I wanted to um, kind of adapt to what they needed, not just kind of set up, you know, exactly a, a just a smaller version of the firm I had come from. Um, so I did, I was lucky because I had a good um, handful of clients who came with me. And it sounds like the firm really wasn't interested in those clients either. No, I don't think they weren't the priority. You know, they were fine when, when there was, they were fine for someone less senior to work on. Mm -hmm. It was more, and I think that's typical in a lot of bigger firms. It just doesn't make economic sense any other way. And it doesn't make sense for the clients. So, 
Um, I had a good idea that I, you know, I still wanted to just do transactional work. I talked to a lot of folks who were like, oh, I don't think you can have a small firm that just does transactional work. Um, but I, that was all I knew. <laughs> there are a lot of small firms that would disagree. <laughs> right. right. That's what I thought. Um, and so I just thought, you know, I just want to, you know, not, not have to worry as much about when I have a phone call or an email kind of billing for that and doing more flat fee work, offering kind of some just allowing clients, responding to all of the issues that my clients had brought up, you know, not officing somewhere where they have to pay an astronomical sum to park um, and kind of you know, in, in a space where they walk in and think, oh, I'm probably paying a lot of money for this. So we just, I just wanted to be really responsive to what I was hearing from my clients. You know, it's really interesting because uh, we don't think about it in those terms. Lawyers love to talk about how we serve clients and it's, you know, that it's a, it's a really grave responsibility and, and all that stuff's true. Like this is a service business. But we really aren't very good at client service when you get right down to it, right? We 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 put our firms in places that aren't convenient for people to get to. Um, we bill in ways that don't necessarily make sense to clients. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But but we we don't really build our firms in a way that's meant to work the way our clients want to. And it sounds like a big part of it was you wanted to try and do better on that. Yeah, and that really was it. And you know, I was lucky because I had a lot of family members at the time, a lot of close friends who were business owners. So I felt like I got to have a really kind of behind the scenes look at like, here are the things that don't work. Kind of things that you might only, un you might only uncover if you did a pretty in-depth client survey or, you know, some sort of study. But I heard a lot from them as I was leaving about, here's what I didn't like and here's what I didn't like. And yeah, so I just figured, well, let's just see if there's a way for me to serve up, for our firm to survive and us to also respond to the needs that clients actually have instead of just saying, well, this is how lawyers work and this is how we bill and this is where we, where we office. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was kind of from the beginning, the plan was just to respond to what business owners wanted. What were you really wrong about? I mean, I, I don't mean to imply that you screwed things up, but like no. when we all start our businesses, we all end up being really wrong about some things that we thought were going to be like the big deal going in. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was wrong about, you know, I think I was wrong about, I thought that clients would just want to know that if you could just give them an estimate, like, here's my hourly rate, I think this will take this long, um, that they'd, you know, they'd be fine with that. And it was interesting because a lot of my clients were on their second attorney, you know, they had worked with someone before mm -hmm. and were switching and they just didn't believe you. And I kind of understood because they had just been burned in the past. So I didn't realize. That's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> Lawyers are terrible at estimating. Right. <laughs> and so I didn't realize that they really could not believe that like something was only going to take two minutes or I mean, excuse me, two, two hours or was only going to take, you know, a half an hour because business owners are really used to just doing everything themselves. And I think they thought, well, if it would only take a half an hour, I would do it myself. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, it, it'll take me a half an hour. It'll take you forever. Right. <laughs> so I was wrong about that. And I realized they really would want flat fees, even when to me, the flat fee for some things I knew, and I, this still happens to t today, 
sometimes I'll say, I know that if we do this hourly, it'll be cheaper. But a lot of clients on the first kind of time in, they would rather just pay a flat fee because they're just so happy knowing kind of how much it's going to be. Uh, would would you say like, um, is can you like estimate a percentage of the work that you do that is flat fee versus hourly? Yeah, I'd say that probably now we're probably at about 40% flat fee, 60% hourly, just because we have a lot of clients who now, it feels like after we earn their trust, they like us to be hourly because they realize we're pretty efficient. Mm. But I think, yeah, I think because still most of the clients who are new, like the first work we do for them is almost always a flat fee because then they they can establish like, okay, I know it will only be this much. That's interesting. I'd never really thought of flat fees as um, almost a, a marketing pitch to get new new business in the door. And I didn't at all when we when I started the firm. And the other thing was, you know, I was wrong about kind of uh, needing to advertise and needing, you know, I, I did a couple of traditional advertising and things like that when we first started out and none of it. I mean, we don't, we don't advertise at all anymore. Hmm. And, and also I was wrong about, I thought my clients would want a space where they could, um, you know, come and park for free or for not very much. And, but me still have a, a typical office. So I rented space from two other attorneys. Um, and you know, there was free parking, but I found that clients still weren't super excited to come to the law office or to come. I didn't use it as much as I thought I would because I worked with a lot of clients who had, you know, they were at their own business during the day and wanted me to come there. And that's really how I kind of fell into um, running the firm out of the Coco co-working spaces because it just, I realized I don't need to spend this money on overhead because clients really don't care. And you're, so you're in Coco and, and so are we, or rather we will be back soon. Um, and that Coco is a co-working space that uh, people can actually see by looking at your website, which I want to talk about in a minute too. Um, it, beautiful spaces, like clients cannot help but be impressed when they walk into these beautiful spaces. And to the, you know, I see you meeting with clients there. So, I know that you are reserving the conference rooms and using that space. Um, is it ever a problem or does it ever feel weird to get people to come there? No. And I thought it would be. When I, when I thought about um, moving into this space, you know, a lot of attorneys that I talked to were like, oh, well, how will, what about client confidentiality? What about, and like you said, there are conference rooms, there are private conference rooms here. Um, we have permanent space here. When I started out, we just had, um, you know, I just would come and go cause it was just me. Mm-hmm. But then I pretty quickly realized there were a few other, you know, folks here who serve business owners. And so we kind of banded together to rent permanent space. Um, and it, I thought for sure there would be some clients who didn't like it or, but they've all loved it. And they're, you're right. They're beautiful spaces. They're convenient. They're, we're at three of them. So there's, it's kind of wherever a client wants to meet is fine. And there's a lot there, a lot that we wouldn't have um, if we were in a space on our own. Like what? Like someone to greet them when they come in, um, you know, coffee and tea mm-hmm. and water all the time. Um, acts, and one of the big ones is access to this network of other folks that might provide a need that our clients 
you know, have, you know, we, we have access to folks who can help them with their servers or folks that can help Mm, them with their marketing and with their PR. And it's a little bit beyond, um, Oh, here's a referral of someone I know, because it's like, here's someone I know and who I will be working next to all the time. So they probably, and I can walk you over there. (laughs) Right. And they probably will treat you right because they won't last long here if they don't do good work for people who refer to them. Um, So, you mentioned doing flat fees and uh, before we take a a brief break and switch and talk about your website and innovation, I I wanted to get an idea of how you set those fees because first, first step is convincing lawyers that maybe they ought to consider flat fees and the second one is convincing them that flat fees aren't just an estimate of their hourly rate, which um, you've done a great job of pointing out is wrongheaded anyway. Um, so, how, how do you figure out what to charge? Well, we did, you know, some of it took some trial and error. It was, you know, it began with, okay, here's here's an estimate, you know, I think it'll take me about this long on average. But, you know, there's there's also the fact of you just have to realize sometimes it will take a lot longer and sometimes it will take a little shorter. Um, and we revisit our flat fees a lot. Um, to make sure that they're kind of correct and that we're not, you know, that they're not, sometimes we actually move them down as we get more efficient at things or find, you know, new technology or something that allows something to be easier. So you're still doing, you're still doing them with time in mind? Uh, A little, not as much. I feel like we used to, but if something drastic changes, we'll kind of look at revisiting them. But for the most Mm. part, we just try to think like about what's that worse you know, and, and what do clients, what did it, what seems fair to them? And our clients are pretty good at letting us know, like, yeah, that's a fair price. Or I kind of consulted with some of my clients just through social media when I was first setting a lot of these and said, is that a good rate? Here's what you get with it. You know, here's what we'd include with that. And, you know, we also still take it kind of case by case. I mean, sometimes some of our flat fees are like, here's the starting point. But if you're going to have, you know, five different investors and we're going to draft a really complex kind of operating agreement, it's probably going to be more. Gotcha. Um, So, I want to take a two-minute break for our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk about your really pretty great website. Billable hours are the lifeblood of a successful law practice. Problem is you still have to bill those hours. Even if your law firm has an accountant, tracking hours, clients, rates, preparing invoices, and collecting on those invoices is time you never get paid for. And writing notes to yourself in court or on the road is inefficient and error-prone. Run your legal practice better with cloud accounting software and see why over 600,000 small businesses love Zero, including Lawyerist. Get a free trial at Zero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. Beautiful accounting software. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. 
If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Okay, and we're back. And Davis, so um, I've seen your website before and I know you recently revamped it. And I've got to say, like, I, I just, I love your website. Um, I feel like you've really nailed kind of the the tone and the, the, the warmth of feeling and friendliness that most law firm websites lack. Um, it's got this... It's got this beautiful auto-playing video um, that that would ordinarily drive me crazy, but it's used as the background for the main site. And um, and you and your your partner and um, and Emily all look very friendly. There are bulldogs and children, and it it's it may like I want to hire you um, <laughs> just from seeing this. I don't even have anything for you to do, but I want to. You've chosen green as a highlight color and blue, which are not the typical lawyer highlight colors. Um, and even I was looking at your blog and it looks like you must have a goal of publishing about once a month. And um, they're useful posts that sort of answer people's questions and are, um, you know, they're kind of sunny and happy looking actually. <laughs> and so, I really think you've nailed it. So, tell me about the process of getting to this website. Yeah. So, the original website I had was pretty much just me because it was, the firm was just me when we started. Mm-hmm. Um and I worked with a developer and she had kind of a custom um, back end. And it was easy enough for me to learn. And it, it definitely, it also didn't look like a typical lawyer site. But as we expanded the firm. And I remember that website and that was also a good website. But thanks. this new one is great. And so it, it just felt more and more like um, it didn't reflect who we were now. So last year, um we were thinking about possibly, um, we knew we needed to expand and do some more estate planning type stuff and family law stuff because our clients were really asking for it. And so we were looking to bring someone in who does that. Um, but we figured before we, you know, before we found the right person, we might as well start redoing the website because it really didn't reflect kind of the team. I just felt like it was too individualized to me. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to use a different, I mean, I wanted to put it on WordPress. Um, I had other websites that I had, you know, used through WordPress. There are a million WordPress developers um, around Coco. So it just felt, it felt like it was time for a switch. So we worked with um, pretty much exclusively other Coco members and we hired um, Lindsay Gish of Gish and Co who does kind of marketing and PR is kind of a generalist. And she led us through the whole process mm-hmm. and really helped us identify like, what are our typical and favorite clients? Like, what do they have in common? And, you know, how do we convey who we are to them, to the other yeah. potential them? And, so she handled like the design. She got us one person to make our logo, one person to do the design of the site, one person to do the kind of actual development of the site. And it was really nice because she kept it moving in a way that if we were in charge of it, it would have, you know, client matters would have come up and we would have dropped the ball. Um, and she lawyers all- don't appreciate the value of that enough. Like w- we briefly were building websites for lawyers and we let people say, you know, uh, oh, you'll provide the content. Okay. And, you know, uh, after two years, there are still websites that have no content on them. Right. <laughs> not, not because the lawyers can't write it, but because they won't get around to it. Exactly. And so we, it was a really fun process for us. It was pretty painless. And 
you know, we came and she had the idea of what about a video that just plays in the background because we need to convey who you are and where you work and everything that kind of sets the firm apart. And so um, we worked with a local um, video person, Erica Hanna, and she's great. And the nice thing was that everyone we worked with also was really familiar with the firm because mm-hmm. they work in the same space as us and they see kind of what our clients like and they're, you know, personal, kind of pretty personal friends, many of them. And so it just turned out, I mean, some of the things like, when they said a video, we were all like, oh, we have to be in a video, but it was pretty painless. And it totally works on this. Yeah. (laughs) And and, I mean, I hate videos normally, but we reserved Coco one Saturday and, you know, brought all our dogs in and our kids. And the nice thing is we have a ton of footage that we can update this and kind of use other places too. So, And and the colors is a funny story because I'm not I'm not entirely colorblind, but I'm what they call color deficient. So like oh, wait, I'm laughing so hard because so am I. There's a reason why all of my websites only have one highlight color on them. Right. So I just let Emily. I said, Lindsay, Emily, go to town on the colors because I thought my old website was orange, and then everyone was like, no, it was definitely red. It was very red. Yeah. So I. <laughs> So when people are like, the green is great, the blue is great, I'm like, that's fantastic. I <laughs> I take no credit. Oh, that's funny. I should mention, by the way, the, the URL is davismeansbusiness.com. And we'll obviously throw that in the show notes. So if you're listening to this in a place where you can't easily get to it, you don't have to worry about it. But um, it's, it's very worth checking out. Thanks. So you, um, we've talked about kind of how this all came around and, um, and, and there, there are definitely some unusual ways about the way you've, um, like, you know, where you put your office, um, you use flat fees, um, you definitely have a different attitude about it. But in a lot of ways, um, even though even though the word innovative is one that appears on your website that you, you've used during our podcast and that you used to talk about your firm, um, a lot of people might look at that and go, well, what's so innovative about that? She's still just serving clients. Um and, and I, I kind of felt that way about my own firm. I, I went into it with a similar attitude, like I, if everybody else zigs, I'm going to zag. And, uh, and in the end, I wound up representing clients in a pretty typical feeling and looking firm, even though I still felt the, like it was it had innovative aspects. So I guess I'm curious to know, like, what does it mean um, for the way you have built the firm and the way you think about it? Um, how, does, how does innovation inform that? Yeah, I mean, for us, a lot of it is um, our willingness to use um, tools that aren't always geared towards law firms. I mean, we do use like a, a practice management system, but we use a lot of, um, I guess there's a lot of behind the scenes things that I feel like are kind of innovative for a law firm. Um, and, and then I feel like we approach it a lot, um, kind of as a, because we're surrounded by startups and small businesses, I feel like we use a lot of those concepts in how we do things. Um, so, you know, for me, one thing about being innovative was, you know, we don't little things, little tiny things. Like we don't generally build clients for phone calls or emails, or we don't really have a big hourly, um, you know, target that you have to hit monthly. Um, we kind of grow in relation to 
you know, oh, hey, we, you know, we met a lawyer who really we feel like would kind of fit in well, not we need someone who has zero to three years of experience doing X, mm-hmm. Y, and Z. You know, another way and kind of it's, it's more behind the scenes, we do a lot of sort of business advising, I would say. And I feel like that's pretty common for like accounting firms and, and places like that. They often will say like, we do business consulting as well. But we end up, when Emily first joined the firm, she said, well, she first said, do you have any concern that I have literally no experience with <laughs> business law. And I said, no, I think it's great because you know things I don't know and I can always teach you the substantive stuff, but I cannot teach someone like to have people skills or mm-hmm. to have common sense. Like you have those things. Um, but she also noticed when she started like, wow, we do a lot of not lawyering you know, a lot of what we do is not just, well, here's the law and here's what you need to do, but it's, here's, you know, a way that you, here's something that we've learned from other clients that we think would be helpful for you. Or here's, you know, a client will call and say, Hey, I'm gonna, I'm the only, I'm the only owner and I need to do uh, reviews with my employees. Will one of you come over and do it? Or will you come in and teach our folks about, you know, this or that? And so we do a lot of that, which, you know, I can imagine in a larger firm, there would be need to be great discussion about like, you know, can we do this and should we do this and how should we charge for this? And our clients are really just like, we need someone to tell us how to do this. We think either you do it pretty well or you can do the research to do it, um, you know, come on over. And it's much less formal. And Mm -hmm. we've actually recently started pulling together some of our clients who have either are at similar places in their business or have similarly sized staffs or have something in common. And we just pull them together for little lunches um, Mm -hmm. where we kind of cover a topic and they all just kind of also ask each other, like, what are your best practices for this? Because one thing that business owners really lack is ongoing, you know, continuing education. Yeah. There's nothing for them to, to like tell them, Hey, here's a way to do this or here's a way to do that. You're sort of building your own networking group too, by doing yeah. that. You're, you're connecting your clients to each other and, and, and providing a resource. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like, I mean, cause we often are the conduit to that. Like, Oh wait, don't do this. We had a client who did this and here's the terrible outcome, but it's, it's often easier to just put them all together and say like, here, trade your best practices. Hmm. How do you charge for stuff like, um, you know, coming and sitting in on employee evaluations and stuff Do you, or do you? Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty case by case. I mean, sometimes if we're just going, um, you know, the default is we just charge our hourly rates. We always make mm-hmm. sure, even if there's more than one of us, we only bill for one of us. So we never double bill for a meeting or something. Um, because I remember thinking when I was at a larger firm, like, oh, there's like, (laughs) (laughs) there's like $1,200 sitting here, like every, so we don't do that. Um, and we, you know, we, we sometimes will say, Hey, you know, if you want us to come in, cause we had one client who said, well, I'd like you to come to these evaluations and reviews, but you know, I can't pay you for like meeting with seven clients for, you know, an hour and a half or seven employees for an hour and a half each. So we sometimes will just say like, well, let's just 
figure out a, a flat fee that feels reasonable, you know, feels like it's paying us enough, you feel comfortable with it. And so there's a lot of, I mean, for us, a lot of times when we need to figure out a fee for something, we kind of go to the client and say like, I don't know, what do you think's fair? Yeah. You know, help us I, I, out. I love doing it that way, actually. And, and you can, you can always evaluate on the back end, like, did, do we feel like we got ripped off or, or, right. and, and if not, and if you did feel like you got ripped off, then you learned something really important from it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you wasted an hour of your time, but. Yeah. Right. How many hours do you waste in a week? Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so, uh, you briefly alluded to some of the technology that you use. Um, and I, because I geek, I have no idea if our listeners care a lot about this, but I geek out on legal tech. And so, I'd love to know, like, what are, what are some of the most useful, essential technology tools that you use in the practice? Yeah. So, this is, I, I, I love this kind of stuff, too. Um, <laughs> we use Clio as our practice management because the one, the, the hands-down thing I like the most about them is that they understand integration. Like, they understand, like, you will use more than just this, and everything mm-hmm. should talk to each other, ideally. Um, and so, you know, we use, like, Google Apps for our um, our email and things like that. Um, but the the big things that we found that are super helpful, like we use Zapier to kind of make any of our um, software that we use that doesn't automatically talk to each other um, to to make them talk to each other. Um, so like we it, we recently started using and we use Slack because we oh. as a messaging tool because. We may be in three different locations, you know, for the the best, the, the greater part of a week. Um, so we use. Well, let me let me get really granular. Um, do you create a channel for each client, and do you invite clients to your to, to your Slack team? We haven't created a channel for each client yet, but we definitely do for clients who have like a bigger ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Every piece of litigation kind of gets its own Slack channel. We hadn't invited clients to our Slack teams yet because to invite people to just one channel um, is the paid Slack. But then Slack realized we were using them quite a bit and gave us one of those teaser, like, would you like to try this? Uh Um, So we were doing a tech audit for a client and um, as a part of litigation and our, the person doing the tech audit said, you know, can you invite me just to a channel? So that was great. So we communicated with our tech person all through Slack, which was Very super cool. helpful. Um, but yeah, we have been kicking around the idea of possibly um, kind of upgrading to the paid Slack and then inviting, creating a channel for every single client and then kind of communicating with them primarily through there. Um, because one nice thing is then they can't forward it on. So you, right. you you don't have the possible like, oh, you just ruined the privilege of that piece of information I sent you because you forwarded it to three other people. I, have, I haven't met too many lawyers who, who do that, um, who invite their clients in <laughs> Slack. But I don't think there's any reason not to. It's more secure than email, if anything. And I'm kind of, I'm just pretty curious about it. Like I, um, I, I it seems especially for ongoing relationships like you have with some of your business clients, it seems like a generally a good idea. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think there's any reason not to either. I I noticed that you're using Lexicata and I noticed this because I was poking around your website code trying to figure out um, who designed it. 
Um, and there's some lexicata code in there. So I saw that you're using that. Yep. And we've used that because we use like Ruby for our phones and those calls can just go right into lexicata. Lexicata feeds right into Clio, which is nice. Um, and we actually um, started using Trello recently, which like at first I thought like, what do we need? We don't need Trello because we have all these other tools, but we have a team meeting once a week. And I mean, each of us, there's, you know, three attorneys, a clerk and a part-time assistant. And each of us can be working on, you know, five to 10 different matters at a time. Mm -hmm. And there's just no really great way of keeping track of that or looking at it in Clio. You can look at it at an individual level, but not really a full team level. Mm -hmm. So, we just started using Trello recently because I was going to create an Excel, like I was making an Excel list of like all our open matters. And I thought, well, first, this is ugly. And second, only one person can have it open at it. Like there's so many limitations. And so I asked our tech advisor, like, this is what I want to do. And I was describing it to him. And he said, I feel like you're describing a Trello board. Mm -hmm. So, so we just have this master Trello board now that is all of our, exist everything that we're working on um, right now. And we just have different columns of, you know, it's in process. We're waiting on something from a client. You know, it's pending. This person isn't yet a client, but we're kind of doing something for them. I had a light bulb. I had a light bulb moment when we had John Grant on our podcast to talk about, um, you know, do, using Kanban boards to organize um, like that. And when you have things that are in stages when you can divide your workflow up into stages. Trello is amazing for that. Yeah, it's just great. And so we've been using it and we just pull it up every team meeting and we just go through and say like, what's the update on this? What do we need to do with this? It's sort of your tickler, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And it's also, you know, Trello and Clio, we connected them through Zapier so that when a new client when a new matter is open in Clio, it automatically creates a Trello card, which is just amazing. That's pretty cool. Any any other essential technology that you use? I feel like Slack is the, the like, I can't say enough about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so funny, right? Nobody has ever been as excited about a business communications product as we all are about Slack. Yeah. I mean, I, I serve on a few boards. I teach a class at Mitchell. Um I have one client and all I put, I've gotten them all on Slack. I mean, I just hmm. basically, and it's nice because then as people send me things throughout the day, I can just ignore it until, and then it's all together. Like everything for a particular thing is together. I, I just wrote down um, that I should try to get uh, one of the boards I'm on onto Slack because that's a great idea. <laughs> so nice. Um, I don't know that we, I mean, we use some other, you know, we use MailChimp for our email list, but now we have too many subscribers, so we have to pay for it. So I'm like, gotcha. there might be a better paid option. Well, I was going to ask you, you know, you're using a lot of different tools and I always worry about, um, you know, subscription fatigue. Um, it sounds like you, you must be, you're obviously paying for Clio and Google apps. You're, you must be paying for Zapier and Lexicata and Ruby. But it sounds like you're still on the free plans for Slack and Trello and maybe some of the other things you're using. Yeah, and we're actually on the free plan of Zapier because oh. some of our Zaps we don't have, um, you know, they're not uh, instant. Like, we, they can go every 15 minutes. It doesn't really matter. Right. And some of the things, like, I use Evernote. I don't feel like I use it well. Like, I don't organize it like I feel like it could optimally be organized. <laughs> 
Um, and, and like for things, no, like, nobody does. Nobody actually knows how to use that optimally. Actually, <laughs> and for things like that, like I just, um, you know, I I realize that you can't make every. There are very few things that you can get everyone to use. So like Trello, I told everyone, listen, I I can be in charge of kind of updating this as we go through every team meeting. You can learn as much or as little as you want about this this piece of software. The only things that are, you know, everyone needs to know are basically Clio and Slack. And the good thing is that like, you know, when you realize how many emails Slack can keep out of your email inbox, it's like anyone will, will jump on board pretty. pretty I suppose most of the rest of this stuff just sort of happens in the background. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be something that people are actively engaging with. Exactly. Exactly. That's a good point. We talk about that a lot at Lawyerist. At my firm, it's, um, it, it's true with clients. Every you, you want to minimize the number of things you're asking them to do, like logins that you're asking them to create, right? If you're going to use Clio to communicate with them, great. But it, talking about getting Slack accounts for clients means you're asking them to create another login for something, and it's a it's a big barrier, actually, a bigger than we we think. Um, and so we talk about that a lot. And you want to use as few tools as you can, but as many as you have to. Um, and uh, you know, two Clio and Slack is a pretty good number for, right. team, for your team. Yeah. And I mean, with, with working with mainly with business owners, I mean, they have very short attention spans like they, <laughs> and it's really great as someone who is a service provider to them, because as you earn their trust, they turn more over to you. Um, but so it's like, we don't use Clio connect to send our invoices, even though we send them by email and most of our clients pay using um, like law pay for, for credit cards. Most of our clients pay that way, but we just don't do it that way because it's just another thing that clients would have to learn. And it's just right. like, nope, they don't, they don't have time. Davis, thank you so much for being on our podcast. I, I've learned a lot, um, uh, both about you and, and about law practice, and I really appreciate it. And I hope um, we'll have a chance to have you back and maybe get an update on uh, your experiment with using Slack with clients. Sure, yeah, thanks. make sure you catch next week's episode of the lawyerist podcast subscribe to the lawyerist podcast in itunes or in your favorite podcast app you can listen to it at lawyerist.com podcast you can also subscribe to the lawyerist insider our weekly newsletter just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top we'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode thanks for listening Thank you.